Hey, welcome back, loyal listeners, and thanks for downloading the Noggin Notes podcast. I'm your host, Jake Wiskirchen, and this episode, I think, is awesome. I interview one of my good friends and mentor, Eric Schoen, about some uh, recent political developments policy-wise and legislatively in the state of Nevada, but then our conversation turns toward what could be possible nationally and internationally with regard to the mental health culture and how we can reconceptualize what it is that we do. Um, I, I, I left the conversation very inspired, and I think that you will too. So, um, while the first part of it, if you're not a, a policy wonk, uh, may, may be a little dry, I think that if you stick around through the first uh, 20 or 30 minutes or so, uh, the last uh, 30 or 40 are pretty pretty powerful. So um, that all being said, the show is brought to you by Zephyr Wellness again, which is a company that I co-own in Reno, Nevada and Sparks, Nevada with my co-owner, Lindsay Bell. And we provide mental health outpatient counseling to all people who can uh, get to us to seek it out. We don't turn anybody away because we use graduate students doing their practicum work. And that allows us to treat anybody regardless of ability to pay or insurance coverage, which I think is is pretty sweet. The podcast is also brought to you by Audible. Audible is an Amazon company, and we are really proud to have them as a sponsor if you go to audibletrial.com slash noggin notes, you can download a audiobook for free and get a 30-day trial just to check it out. And uh, even if you don't like it at the end of that trial, which I'm sure you will because I've, I've already signed up and uh, gone through their uh, little process to, to screen what I like and, uh, and what I don't like, and, and it's, it produces your, your personally customized list of things you might like. Um, even if you go through all that and, and don't like it, you still get to keep the audiobook, which is pretty cool. So audibletrial.com slash noggin notes. Get a 30-day trial. You get a free audiobook. And you get uh, an opportunity to browse their completely unmatched selection of audiobooks. But they don't just have audiobooks. They've also got originals that um, people produce for them. So you got original audio shows, news, comedy, uh, and more uh, from basically the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers. How can you go wrong? Um, so go to audibletrial.com slash notes and start your trial. Support this program and get a free audiobook in the process. Right now I'm listening to 12 Rules for Life uh, by Jordan Peterson. Uh, also suggested was a book by Brene Brown. And uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, another book I, I haven't read and I look forward to listening to. It's been around for a lot of years, and uh, one of those things that's just kind of been lingering out there. So if I can listen to it in audio fashion while I'm driving around or while I'm working out or cooking dinner, I'm going to do that. And um, I, I, th- I think there's nothing more convenient than audiobooks. So go to audibletrial.com slash notes, get your free 30-day trial, support Noggin Notes, and of course, we are the podcast that aims to educate and enrich your noggin by expanding it with content related to mental health, mental wellness, spirituality, personal insights, personal growth, and all sorts of other stuff related to this psychological matter that floats around in our world these days. So with that in mind, this is my interview with Eric Schoen, good friend of mine and personal mentor in many ways about the latest developments in the world of behavioral health in the state of Nevada and how they might impact us nationally and internationally. Enjoy. 
So on this episode of Noggin Notes, we're talking with Eric Schoen, Executive Director of Community Chest. And we've had on this program before uh, Adrian Sutherland, who's another Community Chest person. Uh, we're not talking about Community Chest this time, but if, you, uh, if you're a, a loyal listener, you remember our three-part series on rural mental health, and Adrian and I discussed that at some length, and Eric is Adrian's boss. But beyond that, you're, uh, you're much deeper than just being an Executive Director of a community agency. Uh, I want you to introduce yourself a little bit, please. Yep. Hello. Hello, everybody. This is Eric. And um, I apologize up front. I have a cold, so I'm doing the best that I can. Uh, essentially, for tw- the past 25 years, I have wanted to um, work in whatever capacity that I could to improve mental health services for people who need them. Um, ideally, if we can create an environment where we don't need so many supports, um, at least as we've traditionally defined them, that would be fantastic. What I mean by that is friends helping friends, family helping family, neighbors helping neighbors. And I've done that in a variety of capacities, first in Oregon, and now most recently in Nevada as a professor at UNR and executive director of two different agencies now with Community Chest, and also as a member of the board of, of um, examiners of marriage family therapists and clinical professional counselors here in Nevada for the past 10 years. If it sounds like Eric is completely out of breath and he never works out, he's he he's not. He's he is just sick. And uh, <laughs> we've known each other for a couple of years now. You're actually a very healthy, fit individual. It probably just sounds like you're dying in the microphone, <laughs> but that's okay. Um, I uh, I haven't spent any time, I don't think any time, uh, I may have mentioned it once, uh, on this podcast talking about the licensing board stuff that you and I both do. Because I didn't want to mix that into this podcast, because it's, it's often not really relevant. But I think today, given the topic, it is it's, it's of a great deal of relevance. So for our listening audience, um, especially those who may be listening internationally, the idea of a licensing board is that uh, in the United States, anyway, as I can only speak to our country, states uh, have governing bodies that are state agencies that regulate certain professions. And one of those professions is ours. It's the the counseling or the marriage and family therapy profession. Um, But these state agencies essentially credential, certify, and license uh, individuals to do what they do in a professional capacity. So that could be everything from uh, clinicians like ourselves to doctors to contractors who build buildings, um, barbers, estheticians, nurses, all sorts of things. So anything that's a professional job is often regulated by the state. And the reason they do that is to make sure that people are meeting a certain standard so that they're providing a certain level of care to the community. And and we're essentially protecting the public. So uh, when Eric says the board of examiners for marriage and family therapists and clinical professional counselors, uh, what the board does, and we are two members of a nine member board, we examine uh, people's applications for licensure. And we, we try to ensure a minimum level of competence. Um, and what we're talking about today is uh, something that's of great relevance to that board because we had some legislation passed that um, really was, I mean, I, so currently, for, for context purposes, we're, we're recording this at the tail end of May 2019, uh, heading into June, and I have one month left of my term, but I've been chairing the board for the last two years, but before I chaired it, you chaired it, and, um, and even though I... You know, I guess people have been giving me credit for pushing across the finish line. It really was your brainchild in the beginning, and you deserve a ton of the credit for, I guess, catalyzing what we what we just did. So I appreciate you wanting to share credit. So first of all, cheers. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Yes. So 
this is um, the passage of SB 37, and we'll get into what specifically the bill did, I think is um, one of those once-in-a-generation opportunities. And I think it has um, portends momentous um, advantages for going forward in the future, both for mental health care here in Nevada as well as nationally. And I think for the different mental health professions working together, um, what I could not have foreseen is just how far we were able to to come. I, I certainly hoped when I assumed the presidency three years ago that we would make progress on reestablishing trust in the, the body of the board, as well as um, making things transparent, more transparent and generating more active public um, participation in, in the life of the board, all things which were, I think, missing or not um, as robust for sure before we started that process. But I, And I certainly hoped that we would be able to get the board in more stable footing because we were rather unstable for a variety of reasons. But the, the amount of ground that we have managed with both uh, the changes in the administrative code as well as SB 37, um, I think will, as I said, mean huge strides going forward. So if you're if you're listening to this and you're hearing a bunch of lingo about administrative changes and, and whatnot and transparency and stable ground and SB 37, um, bear with us because it will all unfold over, over the course of the conversation. Uh, to, to explain, SB in the SB 37 is Senate bill, and that's just the, the house in which it originated. So in Nevada, we have what's called a bicameral legislature. There's two houses, Assembly and Senate, and this this bill happened to originate in the Senate side, so it got the name SB, and then the the, the number of the bill thirty seven. So, what it aimed to do was um, provide some some equity among licensed professionals uh, as far as what our practice scope could be, and it also increased funding. Those are the two major things that came out of this. Um, Talk a little bit about the the experience of the funding because you've got ten years on the board under your belt, and why funding for a licensing board is so important. Okay, and just to, to revisit, I think there's three primary um, areas that this bill achieved significant ground. One was sort of reestablishing equity between the professions. Mm-hmm. Number two was reestablishing scope of practice that we had previously lost, previously lost twenty years yeah. ago, and I want to talk about that a little bit too. But thirdly was the the increase in our limits that we can now charge for license fees and other sorts of things. And the reason that was so important is the last time that we'd been able to do that was 30 years ago. So if you can imagine trying to pay for a house mortgage or your your house bills with an income from the 1980s, it would be really, really difficult. And that's essentially where we were as a board, which meant at the board level, we couldn't afford, well, we still board an investigator to really follow up on the complaints. And one of our primary charges is to protect the public. So we really needed um, the ability to raise fees. And it had previously been discussed in um, previous years, but never been able to be accomplished. And I think the reason we were able to accomplish it this time around is we took over the last three years, we took a lot of time to develop relationships with the other boards with the associations we took time to introduce the idea to our licensees so they could accustom to it and they could understand the rationale that it wasn't just a land grab and that we had really good reasons for wanting this and i think because of that conversation that we had we also encourage other boards 
to take a chance and also look at raising their fees because many of them were in the same kind of situation. Their fees hadn't been raised in a while. And if this is any indication where I say this is a once-in-a-generation opportunity that we just were able to take advantage of, this may not happen again for another 20 or 30 years. Yeah, and, and I think the reason for that is because people generally are not interested in dipping further into their pockets to pay for something that they're, they're, they they usually don't like paying for anyway, which is the, the privilege of working in, in the field. So we all have these licenses and the annual renewal fee for the last 30 years, literally since 1989, was $150. So annually you pay 150 bucks and you get to keep practicing and for context purposes, uh, the billing rate for a one-hour psychotherapy session is about 150 bucks. Uh, now, you don't always get paid that because insurance companies don't always reimburse what you ask uh, or even what you're worth. But by and large, you're talking one clinical hour's worth of time to pay for your licensee. And in uh, contrast, a membership with a professional association is about 300 ish, depending on what association you belong to, somewhere between 200 and $300 annually. So uh, if we had kept up with uh, inflation's pace, we would be paying about $318 for our license fees annually. And what SB 37 did is it raised it to $450 every two years. So we moved to a biennial license. So really, we went from 150 to about 225 annually, which is not much at all. It's about a half hour's worth of clinical time. But what that did was it gave us the latitude now, or it will once we collect the money at the end of this uh, fiscal year, is to hire a full-time executive director, like like you mentioned. It's going to give us the, the ability to hire an investigator for all those complaints uh, against our licensees to, to find out whether or not people are actually doing doing foul work, or if they're just, you know, doing something that you know could they could be exonerated from but we don't know because we can't investigate them because we don't have the, the labor uh it'll upgrade our infrastructure our information technology systems our website all sorts of stuff that'll bring us into the modern era um that's really critical now if you're listening to this and you're bored to tears because we're talking about <laughs> stuff that's not relevant to you uh just bear with us because what is missing from this conversation is the uh notion that Nevada ranks dead last among all states and the District of Columbia uh, and has been there for the last two years consecutively. We're waiting for the the third report to come out uh, to see if we are again at the bottom of the rankings, and we may very well be. But it's a report published by Mental Health America. You can check out mentalhealthamerica.net and uh, just search in their search engine, Ranking the States, and you'll see that overall Nevada's mental health provision ranks 51st. <laughs> So that's all 50 states plus Washington, D.C. And we've been there. We were there in 2017. We were there in 2018. And largely it's because our professional licensing boards were were underfunded. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just us. It's yeah. uh, the social workers. It was the psychologists, yeah. uh, the alcohol and drug yeah. uh, folks. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're underfunded as a board, what ends up happening is you can't process applications appropriately. Uh, people get delayed. They get frustrated. They may drop out of the field entirely. They may move to another state. Um, and then a whole bevy of problems exist beyond that, and one of which is the practice scope. And that is something else that SB 37 addresses. So t- talk a little bit about practice scope because you've been doing this, you know, two and a half times longer than I have. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, so in terms of practice scope, there's two areas where we, we could talk about. The one that I want to talk about first has to do with, I think, state implications, mostly just state implications. And then and the last one that we talk about would deal with mostly state and I think national implications. But about 20 years ago or so, there were some, um, there was a bill, and Jake, you may know more about this than I do, but there was a bill that were that, that was being bandied about in the legislature and somehow MFTs lost the ability to, to treat psychosis. Is that yeah, yeah. Um, so the story goes, and um, <clears throat> I don't know the particulars, but the it hasn't been refuted since I've been uh, talking about it. But the the story is that uh, back then, and I don't want to make I, I don't want to make anybody uncomfortable or think that we're we're um, peeing in each other's uh, corner of the sandbox these days because those days are long gone. But twenty years ago, so goes the story. Psychologists uh, thought that marriage and family therapists should not be able to treat and diagnose period at all and uh, so there was a a long series of conversations held over a couple of year period and then ultimately at the end what ended up happening was uh, marriage and family therapists left on the table uh, the ability to treat and diagnose psychotic disorders which is your schizophrenia your schizoaffective anything that has to do with uh, psychosis um, and the psychologists retain that and the MFTs retain their ability to continue diagnosing, treating everything else in the book. Um, so since 1999 to present marriage and family therapists have not been able to do that. Well, in between 1999 and present, uh, some, some other thing came along and that, and that would be called the P clinical professional counselor or known as licensed professional counselor elsewhere in the United States. And when they came into being, they were placed under the MFT board uh, for governance, and along with that came the same scope of practice, or I guess this, the restriction. So, uh, Eric, you're a CPC, and when you came to Nevada, uh, you didn't even exist. <laughs> Talk about that. Well, so uh, Jake is right. When I moved to Nevada, I... Um, even though I had three years of experience, extensive experience in a variety of contexts, including treating those with schizophrenia, I was not able to bring any of that expertise to bear or have it recognized here in Nevada <clears throat> because my license did not exist. So we, uh, in 2007, we in the legislature, we were able to get a bill passed, established our profession, and then in 2009, 2010, it was implemented, and then we were essentially on par with MFDs with a few more restrictions, which we'll get to in a moment. But um, all along, both professions have been prohibited from treating those with uh, psychotic disorders. And the thing that's really um, sad about that, if you will, is all the data says that if we can treat those with psychotic disorders in a more normalized setting, and bear with me here. What I mean by that is typically people think they have to be over people with, with schizophrenia have to be medicated and they have to be hospitalized. Sort of the most restrictive environment possible. And we have to keep them away from the general popula population for their own protection and safety. All of which contributes to the stigma that we talk about regularly among mental health uh, broadly. And it tends to make the symptoms worse for the person who's experiencing schizophrenia, not better, because now they feel isolated and they're away from the positive social support that would help to stabilize their condition. And we know from how schizophrenia is treated differently in other countries that if you can keep that person in a natural environment, 
surrounded by the love and support of family and friends, that they're much more likely to be uh, successful. They're less likely to uh, relapse into psychotic episodes. They're more likely to be productive and they're more likely to be considered an, an important part of the community. So that is what we were missing, that opportunity for CPCs and MFTs, uh, so clinical professional counselors, marriage and family therapists. That's what we were missing. And we were creating a gen we were training generations of, of clinicians who were, quote, afraid um, and almost unconsciously so afraid of people who had psychosis and or schizophrenia. And we're unintentionally reinforcing uh, the stigma that these people already felt. And I think what's important about that is that along the way, um, every other state not named Nevada allowed its clinicians to treat schizophrenia and other psychotic disorders. So imagine if you're uh, coming from you know Missouri or Tennessee or Texas to move into Nevada for whatever reason you moved to Nevada and uh, you have this this degree and you have this license from your other state you're able to do this scope of work and then you get to Nevada and Nevada says nope sorry can't do that thing and imagine even further if you'd become really good at that particular bailiwick maybe you're really good at treating uh, folks struggling with schizophrenia now you're told you're not even allowed to do it because of some uh, political infighting turf war uh, of yesteryear, it, it it had an absolutely deleterious effect not only on the workforce in Nevada, but on our mental health ranking because people couldn't get adequate care on top of not being able to get adequate resources for their care. Because if you're, say, you know, the state of Nevada working, you know, in the state hospital or the rural clinics and you want to hire people, your applicant pool suddenly gets cut in half because you can't hire MFTs and CPCs. You're, um, you're only looking at clinical social workers and psychologists who had that in their scope. So it, it, it contributed to our slow, steady descent to the bottom of the rankings for sure. Well, and the metaphor that I use is if you imagine a full, robust basketball team composed um, of five members on the court, Nevada was essentially relegating itself to four members on the court. We and were, then and then trying to compete. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Or in this case, you know, it's not competition; yeah. it's to serve others. Yeah. And we are already fifty first in in the country, and here we are hamstringing ourselves even further. So why do that? Right. Because we have a, two professions who really want to make a difference. So to that point, there you know you mentioned the two professions, and there's been some arguing back and forth about the two professions. You and I happen to represent those two <laughs> professions, um, and we get along just fine. Uh, so. I, I'm not interested in um, rehashing, you know, old arguments, but I can I can give at least some context in that when the profession of marriage and family therapy, as uh, as labeled, came into being, it, it did so in the in the late 50s, um, and in 1973 in Nevada, the Marriage and Family Therapy Board was established. Um, the history is such that. Marriage and family therapists, as they uh, called themselves, started thinking systemically about uh, individuals uh, for the first time, like I said, about the mid-50s, and it really took off in the late 60s and 70s, in California. And that profession slowly, steadily moved eastward uh, across the nation. And the professional counseling profession started in the east and, and moved west. So what ended up happening was that marriage and family therapists... Um, basically started 
the the trend of thinking systemically or thinking in terms of how uh, individuals interact within a systemic context and this is all based on some biological surveys uh, i'm sorry research and studies of gregory bateson um watching you know uh, wildlife and biological systems evolved, and then they applied it to family systems, which is which is very innovative back then. And um, nowadays, there there aren't too many people who don't think systemically, because um, we all see things in terms of the the environments in which they interact. And you'd be you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who says, "Nope, I'm only treating the individual in in the individual capacity." That just doesn't even make sense anymore. So, what ended up happening was. Um, when the clinical professional counselors came into Nevada, the marriage and family therapists viewed them as um, not having as robust of an education. And so they decided that in order to be able to treat couples and families, the clinical professional counselors would have to take more coursework, get some supervised practice, and, um, and then they would be, you know, allowed, so to speak, to, to treat these couples and families. Well, turns out that the academic curriculum for professional counseling or, or clinical mental health counseling is, as it's known, uh, does teach systems theory. It just doesn't do it in individual courses like the marriage and family therapy curriculum. It's, it's, well, it's interwoven throughout the curriculum. And, um, and it was, it was, a it was again a, a knock upon Nevada's overall ability to provide services to, to restrict this practice scope for for cpcs when they arrived so something that sb 37 also does is it gives full scope for cpcs to treat couples and families and again this is something that 48 states um the only other one being california also allow in full scope their (coughs) clinical professional counselors or or licensed Mm. professional counselors to do which is treat couples and families nevada was the only one that had the uh restriction in place and lo and behold we're at the bottom of the rankings, uh, and as and as r- rural as Nevada may be, we we call it an urban state because our population centers are are mostly centered in Vegas and Reno, uh, leaving lots of uh, folks without access to care. It's really hard to reach families and children in the rural areas uh, when you again artificially restrict a practice scope. So. Talk a little bit about your experience with that too, because um, I know you've you've had a long haul of you know moving here, not being recognized, then being partially recognized, and all along you've you've been fully competent to do it, uh, even up, up to teaching at the university level, which is bizarre because you know you're you're teaching people how to do this stuff, but you're not allowed to do it yourself. Um, speak a little bit to that. So when we passed the um, CPC bill in 2007. I wasn't thinking so much about the individual advantages that I would enjoy. What we were looking at was Nevada at large and bringing a whole other profession to bear to make a difference in Nevada. And if you looked at the numbers nationwide, we had three or four times as many CPCs or LPCs licensed professional counselors as there, as there were MFTs. And we still do. They, they still massively outnumber MFTs right. nationally. So the hope was once that we passed, once we passed that bill, our hope was that we would then attract um, an approximate number, if you will, an equivalent number representing that percentage here to Nevada, which would have made a huge difference. That didn't come to bear. <clears throat> 
for a variety of reasons. And I think one of those reasons was the um, lack of full scope of practice. Because if you were in, from one of those 40 other states and you had enjoyed uh, full practice, you probably didn't want to have your wings collect voluntarily. If you could help it, you probably chose other places to move to if you're considering moves. So, well, just uh, I want to pause for the listening audience because if you if you can imagine, I know we have clinicians listening to this, and I know we have clients listening to this, and just um, public at large. Imagine you're a, you're a school counselor and you're treating a child, and you know that this child is struggling because of a fractured family home. So you refer this child to care, and um, you don't know who to send them to because you're not sure who can treat the, the parents in the context of the, the kid. And, that, and that's essentially what we're facing. Or imagine that you're, uh, you're a couple and you, wanna, you want some couples counseling and you flip through the, you know, the, the phone book or whatever and you're not sure who can do what. It was, it was almost like artificially um, advertising uh, a bait and switch. It wasn't intended but you got a bunch of clinicians out there saying, "Hey, I can help you, but but only so far." And and don't don't bring your spouse in because I can't I can't have that person in the room, or uh, I can treat you but not your child with you. And it was very very convoluted and very complex for even the the public. So from a clinician's perspective, the professionals were very frustrated at not knowing what they could and could not do, but also the the people seeking help. Uh, didn't know where to go either, and right. that and that and that was just that was just awful. Yeah, well, and and I think to an earlier point that you made, there are other um, professionals who have different titles, whether it's licensed clinical social worker or psychologist, who are equally adept at treating families. They do it from a slightly different approach, mm-hmm. but they have experience. They have uh, maybe additional training that helps them to um, define their way forward. So there is plenty of room for all of these different professions to make a full, if you will, robust basketball team who can uh, <clears throat> who can actually win, win the day. And that's what we're trying to do here in Nevada. So SB 37, if you will, finally sort of reconciled uh, what 48 other states do. So now Nevada is 49th. And that's where I think the national implications of this are um, on several different levels. First of all, the level of cooperation that was required amongst psychologists, social workers, drug and alcohol counselors, licensed professional counselors, CPCs, and MFTs for us to work together for the last two, three years to get to this point, I think sets a new bar for what we can do. Rather than being antagonistic, we can work together for the benefit of Nevada. As well, I think showing that MFTs and CPCs can work hand-in-hand, which hasn't always been true nationally. If you can imagine, for folks who probably don't follow this, and most of you probably shouldn't because there's many other things you you can (laughs) do with your time. time. (laughs) (laughs) But it has been like two... Two prize fighters in a fight who are um, in an existential struggle, and um, you know which one is going to prevail. And there was a sense for a while that MFTs had to prevail, and there was a sense that the uh, American Counseling Association had to prevail, if you will. And they weren't always the best of friends in in states, and different states became different battlegrounds. And finally, I think we're to the point where maybe we realize and maybe we're modeling for the national folks 
hey, if we work together, we can accomplish a lot more. So now there's just one state left, California, which maybe maybe a tipping point if we can finally get california to that point and maybe it doesn't even matter if california ever follows suit but rather than two professions sort of being at odds with each other imagine what we could do on a national scale if we were working together hand in hand for example for better medicaid rates to be covered under medicare and better coverage as well as well as tricare and all sorts of other possibilities you know i got a little bit of a, a a glimmer of hope there because I ne- I had never considered the national scene. Um, I bellyache about it a lot because I would like to serve the elderly population that is covered by Medicare and we cannot because broadly our professions, and this is very, very interesting and very relevant, our professions, plural, the, the professional counseling and the MFT profession are referred to on a federal level as mental health counselors. They don't make a distinction at the federal level. So why we're fighting about it is beyond me. Um, to me, there is no fight. because I came into this very late in my life. I was in my mid-30s when I got licensed, and I looked at this landscape and went, what? This doesn't even make sense. Yeah. Like, all we're, we're all trying to do the same thing. And yet there was this, um, I guess, a political... I, 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 I keep using that word, and I shouldn't. It's It was more of a professional ego identity that was causing grief, um, among professionals but the the ripple effect was into the community who didn't care and didn't know and didn't doesn't doesn't is not even interested they just want help so to me the idea that that cooperation on a state level could trigger a national uh, ripple effect is very exciting and I and I and I'm enthused about that because maybe just maybe our national professional associations can come together in the center and advocate to Congress to say, put us in network with Medicare. Um, we've got the data. We've got all the research. Those those data and that research show very, very clearly that people in the older demographic absolutely want care and cannot access it. And you mentioned TRICARE. TRICARE happens to be the uh, insurance for military families and, um, and veterans who are not VA members. And it's... Um, that for the longest time they they were standing in the way of mental health counselors uh, going in network too, and it's it's still a bit of a struggle. But but at least they're starting to to accept us in network too. So basically, all this means is that more people will get the help that they're seeking mm-hmm. without these artificial obstructions. And so I'm I'm enthused about that, and I and I think it's I think it's exciting because we're we're really talking about there there shouldn't be two camps. You know, in our field, we talk a lot about the difference between binary, either or, black, white, um, all or nothing, which uh, begets a lot of anxiety and a lot of conflict, or dialectic, which is the both and. And in this case, I think we're absolutely talking about the both and. We're all doing the same thing well, equally well, all with graduate degrees. Um, and, And to get hung up on the how is completely absurd and professionally offensive. Uh, it, it certainly, as a citizen, I'm offended by it. I don't, I don't want that going on. Well, and, and to reinforce your point, Jake, what, my previous experience before I moved to Nevada was going to grad, graduate school in Arizona, and then working for three years in Oregon. And in both places, all the master's level professions were essentially looked at as equals. So whether or not yet you were a licensed clinical social worker, 
a licensed professional counselor, a licensed MFT, marriage and family therapists. We were all looked as at as equals, and we all recognized that we all had something unique to contribute, and that we couldn't do the best job possible collectively if we didn't have all of our respective viewpoints. And so for a long time, I think we lost sight of that here in Nevada, that there were other viewpoints that if we combine them collectively, we might be able to exponentially increase our ability to treat mental health care here in Nevada as well. I'm hoping nationally that it not only encourages better relationships amongst the professional counseling and MFT communities, but also with social workers, because I think there's a unique opportunity mm-hmm. for all the master's level clinicians, uh, um, counselors to, to com- work, combine forces to really advocate for substantial increases in mental health care. Well, and I think what would, I mean, if I could, I like doing this from time to time. I like to dream big and paint with a broad brush. And um, I think if I had my druthers, if I, if I would, Pull out my magic wand, which broke, by the way, a little while ago. And I, ha- I haven't found Ollivander's wand shop to repair it. But um, if I could pull out my, my working magic wand and wave it over the entire profession of mental health, and I don't mean the profession of MFT or the profession of counsel, I mean all of mental health, we would all get cross-trained adequately, and there would be one degree. It would be a mental health counseling degree call it what you want counseling whatever therapy it doesn't matter but it would be a mental health degree in graduate school that incorporates psychometric testing family systems couples work addictions care and the origins of the field which are um, analytic psychology and psychoanalysis because without those concepts of the human soul and the depth of the human psyche we would not be where we are anyway so I think you need to incorporate that spiritual component and I, and I think if we had one degree uh, agreed upon on a national level somewhat like the nurses do because they have one association they're all recognized nationally there are compacts among you know 27 or more states that the recognize every state equally then we have portability of licensure we can practice across state lines we we would be able to to come come together in a in a professional capacity to lobby for higher reimbursement rates we could leverage insurance companies to do what we say is necessary and not we we would basically flip the tables um so i don't know if the if the academic world is the the place necessarily to do that um, seems like a good idea to me, but at least licensure equivalence is is where we need to go because we're all we're all essentially doing the same thing from a different perspective. And isn't that what what doctors do anyway? I mean, you got you got a general practitioner. It doesn't mean they can't deliver babies. It means that they're not as good as the the OBs at delivering babies because the OBs got better training. Um, but if you have a fundamental starting point and from there you can branch out into your specialties, I think that's where we do. We don't, we don't start with specialties and then try to merge toward generalist. Yeah. And, and I think there for a little bit earlier on, Jake, you laid out a grand vision for, for what mental health care could be here in the U S not just Nevada, but the U S, um, something that's a shared covenant amongst all of us. And even though, and I think that's why you and I wanted to talk about the, the, the potential of SB 37, which it seems really sort of um, 
important to only a few of us, but it's actually, I think, important to all of us in that if we can contribute to the realization of that grand dream where we get beyond any more territoriality and we focus on all being comrades at arm, um, comrades at arm, comrades at arms, Com- whatever Comrades, com- combat and army combat, I don't even know. <laughs> whatever. No, we're not combating. There you go. <laughs> Brothers who are, and sisters who are on the same journey. I think we will make a huge difference. And along with that, I, I will just put this in there as well, which is to say that if we can get away from the idea that we have to view mental health care as simply coming from an illness perspective, i.e. the only time you can get mental health care is when, is when you're broken. Is when yeah. you're broken. Is that if we can approach it from a wellness perspective where it would be perceived and it could be reimbursed, uh, for example, like a yoga perspective or um, acupuncture or something that you a massage. Uh, if we can get to the point where mental health care is reimbursed and viewed from that perspective, I think we will have reached a, a very important point. I want to take a break um, because we uh, we are about to embark on a discussion about something that's a little bit more broad reaching, and I I love having these conversations with you. This is why I, I enjoy your company. Um, but that that bears merit, and I th- I think that um, the wellness versus illness perspective is something that needs to be explored. So after this break, we're going to come back and talk a little bit about that and help inform the audience about the differences between the two, because I think America largely, and I know I've, I've had some conversations with people abroad who, um, feel the same way. And, um, I think it's worth exploring and, and educating our audience. So we'll take a quick break. We'll come right back. Uh, thank you to Eric Schoen for, uh, attending this and we'll, uh, we'll talk with you in a moment. All right, we're back. Um, Eric and I, uh, took a little potty break and, um, in full transparency, I had to, I had to put some ice on my knee cause I had a, a procedure done. I mean, I, I mean mm-hmm. they put me under, so I guess it was a surgery, mm-hmm. but sure. But I don't, I don't, I don't yeah. want to denigrate people who get full surgeries. It's just a procedure. But anyway, um, it's swollen and I need ice. So that was a real reason, and, and we, had to, we had to go pee. So we were talking before we left about um, the idea of bringing, um, bringing a holistic wellness perspective to mental health and mental wellness. Um, because what we're facing right now is this idea that you have to be broken in order to go get treatment. And, and I think that's a... Uh, I, I never swear on the podcast, but I think that's a damn shame. Um, because what it what it does is it basically says that you can't get a you can't go into a clinician's office and get a you know pop the hood, check the belts and hoses examination, and uh, send you out and see you back in six months. Interestingly, literally every other healthcare profession does this. Dentistry does it. Pediatrics does it. Um, primary care does it. Uh, I mean, optometry does it. Every everybody in our profession in the medical field, to whom you pay a premium for insurance coverage, gives you a preventative care checkup. Except us, and it's ridiculous because we're the cheapest of all those people. <laughs> and so I think I, I get a little bit on my high horse when I talk about this because I think it's it's absurd. Uh, from many perspectives, one of which is obviously the you know the common sense um, keep something running well and it won't break down on you perspective. But then, 
the financial impact to the insurance companies themselves who are paying out for every time you get care would pay out so much less if they just kept people running well than if they uh, elevated to weekly psychotherapy for 26 weeks or, or intensive outpatient or, or God forbid you go inpatient for, for a long, long period of time. Cause then you're talking round the clock care, a hospital bed, food, um, you know, all the, all the maintenance services that come along with that, the administration, the doctors. Um, so just, just pay for people to get checked up, you know, four, four times a year, an hour a piece. And, like don't don't require a diagnosis. Yeah, and I think those are all excellent points in terms of the costs of looking at people from a, a weakness perspective, if you will, or an illness perspective. And I think it also has even further deleterious and pernicious effects if you think about the training of mental health counselors and mental health therapists. And oh yeah, CPCs and MFTs. So rather than when a client is in front of us, we're rather than looking at what's right with them where their strengths lie and how we can build on those strengths, which is what we would do in just about any other profession. Um, for example, just change the lens a little bit. If we were a physical trainer and somebody wanted to come in and be a better skier, we would focus on the areas of, that they're already strong in and try to build on that. <clears throat> where do they already have balance? Where do they already have coordination? How can we bring that over to bring that to bear so they can be a better skier? We don't, unfortunately, do the same thing with uh, mental health care. And so we've, we've trained generations of clinicians to, when a client walks through the room, walks through the door, sits down across from them and the, the seat opposite from them, instead of looking at what's right with that person and what's well, because everybody has something that's right and everybody has something that's well. You can't tell me otherwise. Uh, but instead of looking for that, they're already trying to find out what's wrong. Um, how can they... How can they come up with a diagnosis? Is it, is it anxiety, depression? And some of those things may be valid. But my point being, if we were to sort of turn this on the head, which is historically where professional counseling started from, which was, which was to look at people from a strengths-based wellness perspective, if we were to look at people from that perspective, what could we accomplish? Could we accomplish the same sort of thing that dentists have accomplished by having a six-month prevention regimen where people come in for a couple of two, three, four sessions, they talk with a clinician about what's what, kind of what's going on with them, and they get some more some tips and some ideas and some some insight. Uh, I, I agree with Jake. I think we could probably do a lot more for a lot less. I have uh, three things to say. One is that um, I think people are craving this, and I think that's why the message of spirituality resonates. Uh, it doesn't matter what form spirituality takes, but the idea that you are greater than the than your outward behaviors, I think that speaks to a spiritual aspect that, that there's a certain divinity that lives within all of us, and that was... Uh, the origins that I mentioned earlier of, of psychiatric care with the, the Freuds and the Jungs of the world who said that, you know, you have you have some inner divinity within you that um, is above and beyond greater than anything you'll ever represent to the world. And I think people latch on to that because it's true and truth resonates with people. And, and they find hope in that, that they're not just simply some walking, broken person, but that, that they were meant for more and that they're created for, for more. So 
um, that wellness uh, strength-based perspective, I think, speaks to that. And I think we've, we've lost sight of it because of the financial pressures of the uh, in industry and whatnot. Uh, the second thing is that I, I, I was about to get on a soapbox, and I'm not going to, about compassion fatigue. And I did a, a podcast uh, many moons ago about compassion fatigue and how I, I think it, in our profession it, it just simply shouldn't exist as a phrase because we are supposed to be trained to check other people's baggage at the door. We should not be carrying others' problems with us into our world such that it wears us out to the point that we have to use a, a phrase like comp compassion fatigue which doesn't even make any sense honestly like what you get tired of being compassionate for somebody it just doesn't even make sense um but compassion fatigue originated in the nursing field where nurses uh medically trained were not um they were not given the tools to endure and tolerate the struggles that they witnessed on a daily basis. We specifically are. We are specifically trained to hear horrible stories of uh, abuse and neglect and violence and not carry them. And when I hear about people doing that, it makes me very sad because it means that they don't have any boundaries to, to keep the door closed and leave work at work. Um, but also, it, it indicates that we're viewing it through the wrong lens. We're looking at all the problems instead of all the the possibilities, and that and that bums me out. Frankly, it's it, it, we get caught up in what what we call content in our field versus the process of what's going on behind the content. Um, and then third, to your point about dentistry, dentists don't help you keep your teeth well. They teach you to brush your teeth every single day, twice a day. And I think we in our field lack a lot of that toothbrushing concept because we in our field lack a unified, coherent voice nationally, as we've talked about before. Dentists don't lack that. They, they possess an American Dental Association that speaks on behalf of all dentists everywhere and all the dental hygienists and the dental assistants. And they're all part of the same umbrella and they're all part of the same licensing board in the state of Nevada and most other states. Here we have five different professions. You got MFT, you got LPC, you got uh, alcohol and drug, you got psychologists, you got social worker, and we all kind of contribute to the mental health um, profession. But there's no one unifying voice that says, hey, what do we want to say to the public about how they can keep themselves healthy? <clears throat> all right, we vote on it. Emotional functioning. Boom. There, you know, that's my my preference <laughs> but you know okay it's uh you know uh physical health go go take a walk and it'll keep yourself psychologically well you know like we we don't have a a poster that we can throw up in the office that says hey do these things and you don't have to come in and get your teeth extracted so that that is a really exciting idea because we know the two things that are the most effective more so than psychotropic medications more more so than counseling uh, that people could do for themselves if they did these things on a regular, daily basis, like toothbrushing, would amount to phenomenal gains in mental health, um, mental health care, or experience feeling better mental uh, from a mental health perspective. One is exercise, regular mm -hmm. physical exercise. Number two is meditation. Mm -hmm. And when you put those up two head to head, they they pretty much do the same thing. And so, if we had sort of a daily regimen where people uh, did those things, uh, we would probably accomplish the same sorts of things that dental health care has over the last few decades of recommending daily toothbrushings. Secondly, <clears throat> nobody looks askance at parents who take their kids to the dentist. No, 
There's no stigma no. with going to the dentist every six months for preventative health, uh, tooth care, as well as the occasional uh, cavity and also flossing and, and toothbrushing. Imagine, folks, if we had uh, normalized mental health, preventative mental health care, wellness mental health care to the same degree. For people who engage in meditation, because right now, frankly, admit it, we look kind of uh, sideways at people who do meditation, like they're kind of weird that they do that. Even people who do regular mental, uh, regular physical care and going to the gym every day, we kind of wonder where do they get their superpowers from. Imagine if we had that as normalized as, as daily toothbrushing, as well as flossing, and that people who do that every day were, were supported for that and acknowledged for that. And even going to a mental health counselor was looked at equivalently as, a, as going to a dentist. Well, I mean, it sounds like you're trying to work yourself out of a job, Eric, and how dare you. Um, and I've said multiple times that I'd be more than happy throwing up drywall for a living if it meant that I lived in a healthy community where I didn't have to go to the grocery store and watch couples arguing in the line or, you know, watching parents berate their children or watching my kids get bullied on the playground. Um, if everybody were healthy because we just loved each other and we were able to self-validate and self-affirm yep. and see the goodness in other people, then I, I would be more than happy to not do this for a living. Um, I think also that to your point about the idea of, of, I hate the word stigma because it continues to return our brains to the, the negative rather than the positive. So, um, to the, to the point about the stigmatization of, of those types of things. Um, one of my lifelong goals and hopefully it doesn't take my whole life is that people would, take selfies in the lobby of Zephyr Wellness uh, and post them to Instagram saying, getting my anxiety treatment on at Zephyr Wellness. Because just like the people who do CrossFit videos and post them on Facebook, I, I think it's totally appropriate to talk about your emotional functioning and the, the struggles and successes, by the way, that you overcome and endure and realize when you're going through a counseling program or a, or a treatment plan. But what if we didn't even need to get there? What if we just taught our children how to tolerate their distresses and face the world and meet people with compassion and lead with peace and, and learn to, I love that you say medicate, meditate, meditate. <laughs> that was not a Freudian slip. I love that you say meditate because we think of meditation as this like uh, foreign Eastern or at least near Eastern concept that um, is uh, reserved for only Buddhists, and it's not at all. Meditation simply means a clearing of the mind <clears throat> to be in one's own space, free of the intrusions that are are so perma- pervasive these days. Like um, everything on social media, all the 24 hour news cycle, even, even sports, like it's great to be into sports, but do you really need to watch sports center three times? Mm-hmm. Um, that all just simply distracts from one's own life and one's own self. And when you're caught up in that cycle, that's simply not you, you're neglecting the power and potential that lies within you. Um, that could be accessed through meditation. And we're not talking an hour's worth of, you know, sitting cross-legged with your uh, fingers uh, posed in, you know, uh, a circle or something going, om. Meditation is simply 30 seconds of um, sitting silently and 
emptying your head of whatever's plaguing you at that moment and then recentering yourself that's that's meditation and it can absolutely contribute to your overall well-being well and for those of you who are basketball fans and following the golden state warriors against toronto raptors the um one of the 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 the, the biggest con- contributors on the Golden State Warriors team is Clay Thompson. Mm-hmm. And he just recently talked about the importance of meditation for helping him to be so effective at what he does that he can be non-reactive, not get caught up in the moment, and stay in his truth of who he is uh, as a player and as a person. And so if it helps a high-level athlete, which we typically look at the workouts that they do, the physical workouts they do, and we try to model those. I'm, I'm wondering why we don't also model the mental workouts that they do. I'm going to give two plugs right now. One is for Major League University, whose founder, Austin Byler, was on this show uh, some time ago. And for Christian Conti, who has also been on this show, um, both of whom uh, have helped train high-level athletes in their mental capacity, and uh, both of which absolutely advocate the idea that whatever you practice you will become good at so if you're practicing chaos you will be good at chaos and it will rule rule your life if you practice peace that will also rule your life so to your point about clay thompson um the reason you don't see him screaming at referees is because he practices peace and then and then when the chaos arises he defaults to peace not to chaos well, and, and so to return to an earlier point, I think um, earlier in the interview you heard the excitement level of both Jake's and my voice increase at the excitement, the potential of, of what a wellness-based perspective might look like if at large and accepted by the general population. So most parents that I know don't think twice about taking their kids to see a dentist. They think of it as the right thing to do. And I think of it as as their kid is still a good kid and that they're just making their kid a better kid. But that's not often right now the case when parents consider that their 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 loved ones, their little ones might be having emotional or mental health issues. Mm. They think, what's wrong with my kid? And, oh, mm-hmm. my gosh, I can't take him to care because then what are the neighbors going to think? Imagine if none of, none of that existed. Imagine if they knew in their hearts that their kid was still a good kid and then he just needed he or she needed some additional support and help and loved love and support by a mental health professional i i love that you just made that point and i and i want to extrapolate that to the adults uh, those of you who've listened long enough now we're getting up on an hour here in the in the podcast um if you stuck with us this long i want you to take away that message of hope and that the lens that um, you are that kid still in your adult body with the years under your belt that you have, you are that child and you are still good at heart. And there is, uh, amazing things. Uh, there are amazing things still within you to be discovered and that you don't need to be hamstrung by some cultural narrative that says that you're broken and can't be fixed. Um, I've said repeatedly that, mental illness is not something that is to be tolerated or endured or merely managed. It is to be overcome because the human psyche is limitless in its capacity. And if you as a human being, uh, have the same capacity as all other human beings who've ever walked the earth. And we believe that 
if any human being has done it, it is therefore human nature. We all share the same human nature. So anybody who's overcome anything at any point in time should be a model for all of us that we can overcome all sorts of things. So there's a great deal of hope and inspiration in that and that we are not simply um, sentenced to a life of misery because of uh, a few things that we've done or a pattern of behaviors that we don't desire any longer, we can change all that. And, um, and, I, and I think if we view ourselves through the same lens of compassion that Eric just shared about parents viewing their children, if you can, if you can do that with yourself, you can do anything. And, and I think that taking that wellness perspective of seeing what's great in you and what you've already done well and have sustained, I mean, that that opens up all kinds of doors. And at the end of the day, look, if you're listening to this podcast, you're here. You're resilient. It means you've overcome lots of stuff. You're not you're not you're not resigned to being miserable. You're actually quite capable of much more than that just by virtue of the fact that you made it this far. And I think that's a good point. And I feel like we're probably wrapping up, but I I think that's the difference between an illness based perspective and a wellness based perspective. And that is the wellness-based perspective really taps into the hopefulness of the human experience and affirms our goodness and and that the the journeys that we travel along are are worthwhile. Well, I don't think we need to beat that into the ground any further. So, um, oh, I'm just going to wrap up. Thanks, Eric. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate you coming along. I, I appreciate it. And um, on behalf of the Noggin Notes crew and the Zephyr Wellness family, I wish you all great mental wellness. Have a good one. Mm -hmm.